Welcome to Encounter Grace, where we come face to face with God's work in the world for our good. Join host Jason McKnight as we explore practical issues of community, theology, and leadership in everyday life. Welcome to Encounter Grace. We're glad you're here. I'm Jason McKnight, and I'm joined by Ben Hendricks. Hey, everybody. What we're going to do today is start a brand new series called Three Christians You Should Know. One you know, one you've heard of, and one you should have. So today we're going to really quickly look at Billy Graham, mm-hmm. Harriet Beecher Stowe, and Jeremiah Burroughs. Who? I know, right? One that we should all know. <laughs> okay. But the beauty of this is we all know Billy. Most of us have heard about Harriet, but very few of us have I like have that ever you're met. on a first-name basis <laughs> <Yeah>. with her. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when I've studied her, you know, I feel like I know her. And a few of us have really ever met or know anything about Jeremiah. But all of them across the board have made impacts in our world, and we should ultimately know something about them. So, Jason, why don't you start us, start us off and introduce us to the one that we all know, yeah. Billy. Yeah, and here's also why is because um, we, we just, we're going to give you a little taste of who they are. Billy's not that hard. Uh, and then what they're known for, and then why it matters for us. Why are we doing this? Is it just facts knowledge so that when you're watching Jeopardy, you got something? Or what <laughs> is this? So that's what we're going to do. Just three parts in each of these friends of ours. Who they are, what they're known for, why it matters. Who's Billy? Okay, this one's really easy in North yeah, Carolina. You did get the easy one. I yeah, know. I did. I, I took the easy one. All right, well, it was we cast lots, and I got the. <laughs> so, you know, the son of a dairy farmer from Charlotte, born in 1918. Uh, the oldest of four children, but clearly God placed an unmistakable call on his life to preach the gospel. And he actually started as Youth for Christ International's first full-time evangelist back in the 40s. And he began hosting evangelistic rallies. His first one was Grand Rapids, 1947. I mean, in in addition to speaking at YFC clubs, but Mm. the first full kind of several-week rally in Grand Rapids, 1947, very quickly he formed, they formed the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And then we start getting into the stuff people know about. So the, he went out to Los Angeles uh, in, the, in the late 40s, and I think it was 48 or 49, and that 12-week-long tent revival meeting. And that's where the big newspaper guy, William Randolph Hearst, Puff Graham. And so it just became, all of a sudden, now he's got national status. And then other things, London in 1954, which... People will tell you changed the country of England after World War II, after the depth there, the gospel coming in and gave hope to the church again and to the people who came to Christ. Uh, My favorite in those early years is uh, 1957 in New York City, the crusade there at Madison Square Garden. Every night, sometimes a second service afterwards on Mm. the street outside Madison Square Garden's 16 weeks. Can you imagine that today? 16 weeks every night of the week except Monday night. I mean, they just kept going, ended with a big rally. Anyway, on and on. And that's just in the 50s. You go on and all the way through preaching all around the world. Um, We're going to talk about that. But he just, God just put his hand on him. Of course, he loved his wife, Ruth Bell Graham, and she's buried beside him in Charlotte. She grew up in China, daughter of missionaries. Um, They met at Wheaton College, lifelong love story. No matter how much around the world, like he just couldn't wait to get back to the mountaintop in Black Mountain, you know, Mm -hmm. little piney cove and be with his wife and his five kids, although He was on the road a lot. Today, you can visit the Billy Graham Library in good old Charlotte. It is one of the biggest tourist attractions in the city of Charlotte, which I think is great. That's incredible. I didn't know that. Yeah. And his his grave site is right there. He died in February 2018. So 
what's he known for? Okay, that's kind of a little bit of who he is. What's he known for? Well, obviously he's known as an evangelist. Talk about that for one second. But also he's known for being a clean one. (laughs) One that never got dirty or sullied. And we'll talk about that for a second. Yeah, he's an evangelist. I mean, if you've seen the stats, it's interesting. I was speaking, I was telling you this before. I was speaking to um, some high school students about five years ago. And I just mentioned Billy Graham as just someone that, you know, whatever. And blank stares. And it's, it's unbelievable that a generation doesn't know about him because he's spoken 185 different countries in this world to an estimated 200 million people over Man. those 60 years of public ministry in person or via live stream, you know, right then and there. Reco- the Billy Graham organization recorded over 2 million decisions for Christ. And they worked not to inflate anything. Like an evangelist of the highest, like when someone preaches to more people than the Apostle Paul, it means something, <laughs> you know. But the other thing is, you know, why, uh, what are they known for? He's known for being an upright in all his dealings. Mm-hmm. And he never got sideways. And, you know, we're, we grieve all the time as Christian leaders fall, you know, and, yeah. and things come out about them. And it's just sad and hard and, you know. But back in the 40s, right at the beginning, he and Cliff Barrows and George Beverly Shea and Grady Wilson, they all met together in Modesto, California, you know, the big town of Modesto. And they were doing some meetings there, some crusades. We don't like that word today. We use wow. rally. But anyway, crusades or festivals. I'm sure that's necessarily better. <laughs> <laughs> but in Modesto, and they, they put out what they called the Modesto Manifesto, and they lived by it. But they said, look it. How are we going to keep above reproach? How are we going to keep honest and not let our lifestyle sully the gospel? And they just, the, the four parts of that is they would be totally upright in the handling of money. In other words, don't go near it. Yeah. <laughs> don't go near yeah, the right. offerings. <laughs> and they always did. They always had uh, uh, strict accountability for that. They would be totally upright in attendance figures. I don't know if you know, but evangelists have a reputation for expanding and, you know, evangelistically <laughs> speaking. Uh, but anyway, so attendance figures. We're not going to hype our numbers to get a bigger thing. It's up to God. On being alone with women. You know, Mike mm. Pence got a lot of trouble in the, in the secular press in 2017 for him saying stuff like that. He's just following the Modesto Manifesto saying, mm. look, I'm going to be with my wife, but I'm going to be very careful to be with someone else. And, and it helped Billy. The last thing of, of the, the manifesto is we're going to partner with churches who support cooperative evangelism. So they would never go to a city except that the whole church network would invite them. Huh. So we're not saying, oh, I feel like a vacation in Phoenix. Let me do a rally there. Yeah. You know, but it's like when they... So upright in all his ways, even in, in something as small as the counting of the attendance or the decisions or of in being invited as to where, where he came. Okay, why does this all matter? You know, like just like is an evangelist, he's a clean one. Okay, great. Why does this matter? What is there for us here? And and I'm going to take a little different turn than what we've talked about, but about Billy. Two things that I think make all the difference for us and why he's worth us remembering and thinking about. Number one is that every sermon he ever preached, I guarantee it. If you want to watch anything on YouTube with Billy, you can't go 42 seconds without hearing him saying this one phrase. You ready for it? The Bible says, the Bible says, and he, of course he has it in that rich North Carolina accent, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Bible says, and it's it, like, good. well, I, you yeah. know, I don't know, the buses will wait, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Um, but Billy, no matter what, he camped on the word of God. 
and the Lord of the Word. He knows that it's only the God mm. of Scripture who changes us, and it's only the, the Scriptures that is the foundation of his ministry. So he never shied away from it. He's standing in the Kremlin in Moscow before the fall of the Berlin Wall. The Bible says, I mean, you wonder what his translator thought. Yeah. I mean, of course, the translator's a Christian. Well, I don't know that. I would think he is, <laughs> but I don't know. What did he say? You know, the Bible says. But that's all Billy, you know, every time, 30, 40 times in a half-hour sermon, the Bible says, the Bible says. That's great. Mm. The second thing why it matters for us in the day of, of uh, people with big egos in ministry is that he spawned so many other ministries and evangelists. I mean, his whole heart, yeah, big stadium evangelism, but he was a spark plug to advancing gospel partnerships in so many other ways. And it's just fun to think of the list, even inside the Billy Graham organization, where there's worldwide pictures, 130 feature-length films. Now, today, we don't think that's such a big deal because we all have Netflix and Disney+. Plus. <laughs> but in the 60s, in the 70s, they're providing resources for the church. Hour of Decision radio program for 65 years. Uh, different evangelists that he trained up, you know, Luis Palau and Leighton Ford and Ralph Bell and all these different ones, um, Decision Magazine. But apart from even inside the BG organization, he used his influence and the resources God had granted them to seed so many other ministries. Do you know he founded Christianity Today? I didn't know that. Do you know he founded Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary? I, I did learn that today, yes. I mean, he was the impetus behind the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization in 1974 that's gone on today, birthing uh, like hundreds of generous collaborative partnerships Gosh. by people in ministry. He was the driving force in 1979 behind the behind ECFA, which is the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, because said everybody needs to play by rules that will honor the Lord. Mm. I just think the fact that, yes, he had the biggest platform in the whole world, but he actually used it, not for himself, but to spawn these other things and to say, Lord, keep moving forward in other ways. I think there's humility there. I love it. Absolutely. So, there has to be, right? So we know a lot about Billy. Let's learn a little bit about Harriet. Yeah. So Billy, the one you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe. <laughs> The one you've heard of. Uh, there's, a, there's a little bit that's known about her, uh, at least her yeah. early years. So born in 1811, died in 1896. So that, okay. really the important part of that is her, her birth and her death bookend the Civil War, which is really right. going to come play a major part in, in, in her story and her legacy. Uh, she was the seventh of 12 children to Lyman Beecher, a really famous, uh, really well-known Congregationalist minister noted for uh, being a revivalist and a reformer, hmm. uh, a guy who just was constantly yeah, bringing about revivals, uh, started starting them, and then yeah, trying to reform kind of the faith both a little bit towards the south of the, of the north, but, yeah. but also yeah. just wherever he went. Uh, a really key part of her life was in 1832 when her father moved her and her entire family to the, to the city of Cincinnati, at that point, kind of just a, like that was a big move. Right. Uh, and they went there because he was the, now going to be the, the president of Lane Seminary, which mm. eventually, pretty, pretty soon after he moved there, was going to be a center for abolitionists. Right. Uh, of just training theologically of that, uh, but also just others as well. Uh, and, and again, played a major part in Harriet Beecher Stowe's upbringing, even though she was a little older at the time, of getting to see the tragedies of slavery yeah, yeah, and the, the implications. Yeah. Those horrors of, as people would come there as they would escape the South and get, just get to Cincinnati. Cause it was really along that line. Uh, 
After a few years, Harriet married a man named Calvin Ellis Stowe, who was a, a professor of biblical literature at Lane Seminary. And then pretty soon after that, at the age of 32, started uh, writing. I started writing at a young age, but by the age of 32 became, I would say, a literary success by writing a whole bunch of things that we've probably never really heard of at this right. point. Right, uh, years later. Yeah, by 1843, <clears throat> published notable works known as the Mayflower Sketches of Scenes and Characters Among the Descendants of the Pilgrims as a Mouthful. Mm-hmm. And then seven years later, at the age of 40, she published her most prolific and important work. So what she's known for, right? Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yep. yep. So then the question, what is Harriet Beecher Stowe so known for? Why do we need to know who she is? And it that's that answer of she's the one who wrote this famous novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Cabin which is an anti-slavery novel that follows the fictitious character Tom, mm-hmm. a slave through a portion of his life all the way up until into his death. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, Tom, what makes this so outstandingly Christian is struggling through his faith, through the hardships of being a slave mm-hmm. and, and the hardships of being on a plantation and going like, Lord, like, how do I deal with who God is, who I am, and yet who, who this master is and who, mm-hmm. and, and what all this means. And so the novel uh, it paints a really clear picture of the depravity, but yeah. also the absurdity of slavery. Mm-hmm. And here's what's awesome. By selling more than a million, that's right, a million, a million? worldwide. <laughs> like, like, so a lot were in Great Britain, but a lot in the North and mm-hmm. even some in the South. Like, praise the Lord. Any um, in Canada? Uh, I don't think they were there yet. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> Probably. A million copies before mm. the Civil War. Yeah. What that meant was that Uncle Tom's Cabin became almost like a rallying cry for many people to take the stand against slavery because they saw many for the first time, again, the depravity and the absurdity of what this was. Yeah, Uh, It's even rumored uh, that President Lincoln, and this might be apocryphal, but we'll say it, upon meeting Stowe said, so... You're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war. <laughs> Uncle Tom's Cabin became a part of the spark that lit the fire of clarity yes. and resentment against slavery. Like people saw what it was. Mm-hmm. Like, and it was to the point where they couldn't just kind of pass it by anymore. Mm-hmm. They couldn't overlook it because it was right there in front of them, or right in front of them. And she, she wrote it in such astounding detail, and she was just a great writer to begin with. Uh, as one of the greatest critics of Stowe ever said, Uncle Tom's Cabin is perhaps the most influential novel ever published. A verbal earthquake, an ink and paper tidal wave. No, like what an incredible, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so the last thing. Why does this matter? Why does uh, it matter? Why does this one book, this one novel make this woman worth talking about today? Mm-hmm. Let me give you two. First of all, Harriet Beecher Stowe helped popularize a theological antagonism to slavery. Helped popularize a theological, a theological antagonism, antagonism yeah. to slavery. Okay. Yeah. So basically she made it kind of popular to have a real theological reason to be, to stand against slavery. Mm. So yeah. a quick story. Upon her mother's deathbed, her father prayed this, this prayer reminding her of her certain arrival upon Mount Zion hmm. into the city of God surrounded by the innumerable angels and the Lord himself. This moment, aided by 
her witnessing of all of these numerous slave tragedies and deaths helped her write Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so the whole novel poses this very simple question. If a slave can come to Mount Zion and to Jesus and to the company of the saints in the New Jerusalem, how, then how can you set him up on an auction block hmm. and trade him from one white man to another? Amen. Stowe reminded all of her readers that the value of a human is not based on skin color or anything else exterior, mm-hmm. but that we're all made in the image of God. That's right. She made that clear for all of her readers. She made that no. I mean, again, this isn't yep. some new position, but she popularized it and made it known to people who are often overlooking it. But then here's the second one. Hmm. She's also evidence that and a good reminder, I think, that many Christians avidly fought against slavery. Like, I think we need that reminder, to yeah. be honest, because I think we often hear that Christians defended slavery. Right. And we, we right, kind of hear right. that narrative from the That's Southern it. Christians. And the, and the truth is, at times, that was true. Too many of them did. Yeah, yeah, too many. Absolutely. But also, a large majority of Christians in that day and throughout history have stood against the evilness and again, the Mm -hmm. absurdity and depravity of slavery. Mm -hmm. And she was one of them. Mm -hmm. And she used her platform, she used her gifts, she used her voice, she used her entire life to to really go against this, against slavery. And we just need to know there were Christians standing against this and one of the reasons we have the we, that we've had the success against slavery we've had is because people have used their voice and and really shown us the real reason why this is such a terrible and depravity filled thing mm-hmm. so someone we should all know yeah and that's good and you know it's been a long time since i've spent any time thinking of harriet beecher stowe yeah. i read uncle tom's cabin in my early 20s it wasn't assigned in school but i just yeah. thought oh here's a famous thing and it was harrowing to read, yeah, you know, uh, it was difficult. I mean, it was it was not G-rated. It's true, <laughs> but it really in in man helped me to yeah. This is this is key. Yeah, let's move on to Jeremiah Burroughs, the last guy we're going to talk about, last person we're going to talk about today, and he we keep going backwards in history. So now we're going all the way back to 1599 to 1646. That's when he lived. So he lived in the early part of the 17th century in England. And we don't know a a huge amount about him, except kind of like everybody back then studied at Cambridge, you know, Mm. and then left, uh, worked here, there, and everywhere. But actually, he was um, on the Presbyterian side, but then actually dissented, so was a a free church advocate from uh, the, the strong Presbyterianism that was taking hold in England. But he was at the Westminster Assembly in 1644, which is sort of the big thing that Presbyterians love to talk about, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith and all that kind of stuff. And it's a good, good document. Mm -hmm. It's a great assembly. But he was there as one of the five dissenting brethren who actually put forward uh, a different... Um, a different article there called An Apologetical Narration. Now, we would never <laughs> title anything like that today. but he And we're going to talk about what he explains in the Apologetical Narration. But, you know, we just don't know that that much about him. Um, 
except for this apologetical narration is the, is the key thing. He also wrote several other books, and, and you can read them. They're Puritan books. They're, they're good. They're hard. I haven't Page read turners. them. Page turners. Yeah. yeah. No, they're, they're, <laughs> you just got to get the these and thous ready. You either uh-huh. have to read King James or Shakespeare, and then you'll be ready. Um, but here's why we're talking about him today. He and Thomas Goodwin and the other, you know, the five dissenting brethren, they basically said that Christians can have fellowship even if they're not in the same church. Or, as his life motto was, difference of belief and unity of believers are not inconsistent. Hmm. And we say, big deal. (laughs) But if you lived in the middle of the 17th century, you would have lived in Europe, in England or Europe, you would have lived through 100 years of religious war. And so since 1517 and, the, uh, and, and Luther with the 95 Theses and, and all the rest of that 16th century, 1500s, 1600s, uh, you're seeing carnage on a scale you can't imagine. And it's Catholic to Protestant, Protestant to Catholic, like the, the 30 years war in Germany and Bohemia and stuff. <laughs> Eight million people dead. Now, there's not a lot of people living in Europe at this time. In France, with the Huguenot, the wars of the religions against the Huguenots, which, was the, which were the Protestants, some three million Frenchmen and women and children dead. In England, wow. Henry VIII dies. And then who gets on the throne? Well, Edward. Well, he dies pretty quick because he's whatever. Bloody Mary, who wants to bring the country back to Catholicism, starts burning everybody at the stake. And then Elizabeth I gets on the throne. And then she, a, little bit of, a little bit of persecution then really a time of peace. But then when she dies, there's another struggle. And this is where we find ourselves. The point, I mean, it's the middle of the 1600s. That's why we're having witch trials in Salem in the New World, because this kind of, of um, if your belief is wrong, we got to get rid of you, or we got to figure out a way to stop that. So idea purity is paramount. And you're, here's the lenses you're wearing. 1,500 years since Jesus in Europe... Christendom is unified, and now it's broken apart. But belief matters, so you got to be wrong. You're heretical. Let's let's do you in. Yeah. I mean, it's the Spanish Inquisition. Hmm. You know, we're going to root out her- heresy. So, um, what's going to happen? Are we going to keep this lens on and keep killing people who are believers back and forth because you don't agree with infant baptism or something? <laughs> you know, like how? What is going to? What's gonna, what happened? Is the Lord brought through Jeremiah Burroughs a relief valve? and through Thomas Goodwin and through the others here at the Westminster Assembly in 1644. And unbelievably, it's a theory that seems so self-evident to us that we can't even think they didn't even know about it at one point. But the idea of denominations. Hmm. (laughs) The idea of denominations. Wait a minute. I don't agree with you theologically. I don't have to get my sword out and chop you up. This is so crazy this has to be said. I mean, isn't it crazy? But a hundred years they were living this way. And Thomas Goodwin, Jeremiah Burroughs writing this book. And basically the theory of denominations is just simply this, that you can have disagreement within a range. Well, no, you can have disagreement and they don't require blood or coerced unity. (laughs) Now within a range, outside the range, you say you're outside the bounds of orthodoxy. But within this, and, and, you know, it's not postmodernism. Because it's, it's a recognition that people of goodwill may not end at the same place on every topic in Scripture. Mm. But their goodwill, they have a high view of Scripture. And actually, it goes one step further. It says, God can use 
these differences to advance his kingdom purposes in our midst because no single church has a total claim on all of God's truth. That's really helpful. It's very helpful. No single church, no single church structure, no single church polity has a total claim on all of God's truth. So God uses the differences and unity can still be expressed. Believers, maybe not because we're all in the same exact type of church, but even when our churches work together and cooperate together. So to me, the, the idea, like it was such a discovery to me. Wow, denominations. I, who could, why does this matter? Why are we talking about Jeremiah Burroughs? Because aren't denominations a bad thing? You know, everyone's splitting up. Well, today, maybe. But if it means a denomination or a sword, I think I'll take the denomination. <laughs> but here's why it matters. Here at Grace, where we serve on pastoral staff, we have our doctrine laid out very clearly on our website. And it's laid out in bold typeface and in regular typeface, unbold. The things in bold are things that if you want to be a member here, you just have to agree on and give assent Mm -hmm. to and affirm ex animo. The stuff that's not in bold are the things we believe as a church, but we recognize that in, uh, in God's providence, maybe they aren't as clear in scripture. So you may have a different view than what grace holds. You can be a member, but don't make an issue of that. We want peace. We don't want swords. So bold means you got to affirm it. Unbold means you have flexibility on it. I forget who it was, John Wesley, or I don't know who, but in... Say confidently, yeah. Right, yeah. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, or non-bold, liberty, but in all things, charity. Well, that idea, and grace's bold and unbold form, find their root in Jeremiah Burroughs and the apologetical narration of 1644. What a great example of just how these guys have made such an impact and a difference... I mean, all like just in our in our church and our lives, all the like just all the way through. That's yeah. an incredible thing. Yeah. So one you know, Billy Graham. Yep. One you've heard of, Harriet Beecher Stowe. One you should have, Jeremiah Burroughs. Yep. So helpful. Thank you so much just for I think just being able to go back and forth and uh, getting to know these guys. Guys, thank you so much just for tuning in. Uh, we're so appreciative. Would you go ahead and send this? Uh, you can send it. You can like it. You can subscribe it. Uh, Yeah, so thank you so much just for being here. Have a great day. This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit